So here, verse number one. Now what happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag, attacked Ziklag and burned it with fire and had taken captive the women and those who were there from small to great and they did not kill anyone but carried them away and went their way. So David and his men came to the city and here it was, burned with fire. Their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept till they had no more power to weep. supposed to be a very, very beautiful day. But what we saw told another story. And we dug our way down and there was a, a, a cavern of, of steel and rubble that was hollowed out inside the ground. And there were seats and benches made out of steel. It was, it was like an amphitheater. And inside of that were four crosses that stood straight up and down made out of steel they found the cross and we heard about that people would come to this place they were spray painted on the side God's house there was hope in the midst of all of that decay somehow in all of that darkness God's light shone through and know people that day, no matter where they were, they stopped. You know, the cross was standing strong. day but what we saw told another story let's pray father thanks for your help our country needs your help our local community needs your help and like the scripture commands us we pray to repent to call on your name We have drifted far from you. We have left our first love. We have traded you for other gods that we now serve. We have abandoned your ways. So we repent. Forgive us. You promised if we repented and truly turned from our wicked ways, you would heal our land. So help us to see in your word today a way back. Deliver us from our adversaries. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. In looking at that scene from Boston, it just was fortuitous that the chaplain who trained myself and Chris O'Connor here in our auditorium and others 
among you as first responders um, and trained some of us to become law enforcement chaplains. Her husband, Chaplain Frank Russell, was in Boston during the time of this horrific event and was able to minister to the police, uh, those law enforcement personnel who were there on the scene having to try to care for the needs of others. And so it's so important that we, the body of Christ, take our place, no matter where we are, in any event, to be able to be there to assist. And training, I think, is very important. Not just I want to help, but training to be able to help. And we hope to afford some of you opportunities to do that again in the future. But this morning, I want to share for a few moments what we need to do in times of crisis. Whether you face 9-11, as so many did in that fateful day, September 11, 2001, at the Towers, at the Pentagon, in Pennsylvania, the loss of life, the families and friends whose lives will never be the same. Now we see again losses in Boston of three innocents murdered, plus another law enforcement individual later in the week murdered in his patrol car. Once again, a beautiful sunny day. All seems well. Everything's going smoothly. Out of nowhere comes terror. And what do you do on the worst day of your life? What will you be able to do? How do you survive the worst day of your life? And sooner or later, life is going to happen, and you will face your own 9-11 or your 415. What do you do? How do you survive the day? In the Old Testament, there's a story, as I read to you, of David at Ziklag. And Ziklag represented the worst day in the life of David. He's been anointed to become the next king of Israel. Instead of ascending to the throne, the current king, King Saul, pursues David, intending to kill him. He wanted him murdered. A reign of terror ensues. David flees for his life. And while out in the wilderness on the run, he assembled several hundred men who also had been exiled, like himself. And together they formed their own militia known as the Mighty Men of Valor. And while off engaged in a battle, the encampment of David and his men and their families is being terrorized. <clears throat> their camp at Ziglag is overrun. Their wives, children, and belongings are stolen the camp is entirely burned to the ground. And David and his men, it says, wept until they could weep no more. The horror, the pain, the loss, the knowledge that what little they had was all gone. They were overwhelmed. And they respond with shock, pain, agony, then frustration and anger. And there are four principles of David those that he acted on when faced with a crisis, and I want to help you with those, because when you face a loss, you can't measure how to deal with some of the problems that develop out of that loss. So four principles David acted on when he faced, when he was faced with a crisis. David had been out in a successful military campaign. He's got his mighty men of valor with him, hundreds of them, and they've taken care of business, and they're on their way back to their encampment. As they come over the rise, they notice an ominous black cloud, smoke, rising above their encampment. And Ziklag was the place where David and his men and all their families had been living. As they come into the camp, they're astonished. They couldn't believe their eyes. Smoke ascended upwards. They noticed their belongings, their homes. Everything was gone. Nothing is left. 
it's nothing but ashes. Their wives and children are missing. Their first thought probably was they're all dead and they've been burned up in the fires. And it dawned on them as the shock wore off, their family members are not here. They've been taken captive by the Amalekites. Now, the Amalekites were raiders. They were terrorists. They would swoop in out of nowhere. They would murder, plunder, and steal. And they left community after community raped of their natural resources and many lives murdered. So here we see David does when tragedy strikes. And this is a model for us that we can all utilize. First of all, number one, first thing that David did was he wept. And some might not think that's very important. The word says David wept. He cried. He expressed motion at the losses he suffered. And not only did David weep, it's worth noting that the mighty men who went to war with him also wept. Strong men, well-trained men, mighty men of valor, they wept and cried until they could cry no more. They wept until there were no more tears. They stood among the ruins of their homes, losses of their families, their children, and they cried. These were men who had faced death many times, yet they wept. And there are those who believe if you have true faith in God, hardships will not affect your emotions. That real faith will never allow you to be shaken. Listen to pastor. When real tragedy strikes your life, it'll shake you to the core and it's all right to weep. Some of the greatest people in God's word wept. Abraham, he wept when tragedy struck, struck and he lost his wife, Sarah. Abraham wept at her graveside. Joseph wept when he was reunited with his estranged brothers who had so terribly treated him. Hezekiah wept when the prophet brought him a word that he was going to die, went into the king's palace and said, set your house in order, you're not going to live. Paul said that he served the Lord with many tears. I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Then, of course, we remember the shortest verse in the Scripture. At the tomb of his closest friend Lazarus, it says, Jesus expressed sorrow. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Wow. So there's something about crying that corresponds to the tragedies of life. And hear the word, there is a time to weep. A time to weep, a wise man wrote in Ecclesiastes. So it's appropriate to weep and cry at tragic loss. Now watch, weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. If you endure a dark night of weeping, you will always have a dawn of faith. And if you hold on, there will always come another season of joy. So watch, in the Philistines, now David is engaging the Philistines. Odds, again, are against David. So he engages the armies of the Philistines. The Philistines also went up and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. Now David was present in an engagement with the Philistine army, and the place where they were fighting is called Rephaim, the valley of giants. So David is in the valley of gigantic problems, and odds are against him. So he goes to a mulberry tree, and he sits down under it and takes refuge. Mulberry in the Hebrew is baka, which means weeping. David is in the valley of gigantic problems, and David goes sits under a weeping tree. And there he is overwhelmed. The problems are so massive. The enemy 
so outnumbers him. He feels hopeless and he feels overwhelmed. And David gets under the weeping tree and he begins to cry to the Lord. And out of that despair comes instruction from the Lord. And it shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly, said the Lord. So when you hear the sound of marching on the top of the weeping trees, know that the invisible armies of the Lord have come down and gone out before you. And it's time to get up from under your weeping tree, David, and go out and fight, and you will overcome your adversaries. I love this because David is sitting there under a weeping tree, and he hears the movement of God's troops at the tops of those trees. And the movement is at the top of the branches of the weeping trees, and it's God moving on his behalf and going out in front of him. And he knows that he doesn't have to sit in the valley of gigantic problems weeping because there's a God who knows about your trauma. And there's a voice above the voice of your own weeping. And it's the voice of hope, and it's the voice of God. I don't know what the tragic events are that you have had to walk through, but his voice says, I still have a plan for you. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. Wow. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. So when David was under the weeping tree, there comes the noise of marching. There's the voice that is being heard. And that voice was greater than his own tears and his own pain. In Psalm it sa- Psalms, it says, 84, as they pass through the valley of Baca. In other words, you don't build a residence in the valley of weeping. Once you go through a tragic moment, whether it's your 9-11 or 415 or personal loss or a death in your family, it's okay to weep. But wait on that voice that is greater and stronger than your own weeping. Because God has a plan to get you through that grief. And when you go through it, you don't build a residence there. Don't remain there. If you've been through a divorce, a foreclosure, a setback, a terrorizing circumstance, the enemy comes along and whispers to you, You just can't get over this tragedy in your life. There's a voice that is stronger than that voice and stronger than your own tears. And it's telling you there is a way out of this. The four lepers in the Old Testament had the right attitude and they also had the right question. Many people ask questions when tragedies come their way. Why me? Why didn't God do something? Where was God? Why did he not deliver me? Where was God in the middle of this? And and why didn't God heal me? Why didn't God come and do something when this all broke out? You're asking the wrong questions. The four lepers asked the right question during a time of horrific terror because their city was under siege. People were starving literally to death inside the city. The army of the Syrians was outside waiting to storm. And the enemy was at the gates. They're ready to strike the final death blow. The Syrians had Samaria surrounded and under siege now for weeks and weeks. And things were so bad in the city of Samaria that the scripture says child cannibalism was happening. 
They were eating their own to live. The outcast lepers are outside the gates. They can't go in. Nobody wants them near them. And they're seated there, and they ask a simple question in the face of this terror and the horror all around them. Now, there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? Why are we sitting here? It happened. See? There's nothing you can do to change what's happened. Some things in life just happen. And when they happen, there's nothing you can do to change them. So you have to ask the right questions. You can't sit there forever in a pity party, because when you do that, the only one who shows up is the devil. He feels at home. Everybody else will stay home. When you begin to grasp this perspective, why will I sit here until I die? I mean, we can't go in. Well, we can run to the Syrians and see, hey, the worst they can do is kill us. If not, they may give us something to eat, right? So we're not going to sit here in this circumstance and be sad for the rest of our lives. I think I'm going to get up and I'm going to look for a better future. That was bad. It can't be changed. But God has a better tomorrow for me. Come up out of the valley of gigantic problems, out from under the weeping tree, hear a voice that is higher than your weeping. Weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Secondly, David refused to get bitter. When he saw his home burned and their community leveled, and saw his family taken, and all their families now are gone. Children, everybody, gone. And he sees all their belongings taken. Every resource no longer exists. The people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved. Everybody was upset, angry. David refused to get bitter. When terror and tragedy strikes in the lives of people, there's a tendency to get bitter at others. The mighty men he had personally trained turned on him out of their own bitterness because we always want to blame somebody. They always want to fix blame on some person because there, there, there is someone you can blame, specific enemies that you can target and say, that, they're the cause of this. But what does not change is the circumstance. The circumstance doesn't change. It still happened. When David's men became bitter, he refused to become bitter. He said, bitterness isn't going to change what happened to us. In Exodus, is the story of Israel. They're out in the wilderness. They finally left Egypt, and they're several days out. And they journey, when now they're becoming very thirsty because it is wilderness, it is hot. And they come up on a body of water. It's water they cannot drink. Can't partake of it. They could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were what? Bitter. And God told Moses to take a tree and place that tree into the bitter water, and it would turn sweet and drinkable. So he cries to the Lord, that's Moses, and the Lord showed him a tree. When he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. Now watch. In Proverbs, the wise man writes, a wholesome tongue is a tree of life. The factor that turns bitter experiences into sweeter experiences, a wholesome tongue is a tree of life. When you begin to speak the things of God, the will of God, the ways of God, the positive things, the healing words, you might be in a bitter marriage, but notice Moses takes a tree and puts it in the bitter water, and it becomes what? Sweet. Your wholesome tongue is a tree of life. So if you'll begin to speak God's word, 
Fill your mouth with praise. Speak those things that God says when you're hurting, even when tragedy has come your way. You just don't dwell on the disaster day after day. You begin to transition your talk to the faithfulness of God, the goodness of God, the steadfast love of the Lord, his unfailing faithfulness. He has never forsaken the righteous. And here's what you're doing. You're sticking that tree into the bitter waters, and your tongue is a wholesome tree of life. It will turn bitter things into sweet things. It can turn bitter marriages into blessed marriages. It can turn an act of terror into a tree of hope for your future. Some people don't understand. Well, when we come into our church, you know, people raise their hands, and they get excited, and they clap their hands, and they express their praise to the Lord why you would even be encouraged to worship the Lord your God, we learned a long time ago. Our tongues are like trees of life. And if you'll praise and worship God in the middle of the tragedies of your life, there's something about people who refuse to become bitter. You just say, God, you're still good. You're still in charge of my life. You're still seated on the throne. You're still the one who makes the final call. I don't know why this report came back the way it did, but you're still God, and I'm going to praise you. In the middle of terrorism that Job faced, they had raided and stolen everything he had. Job said, if you slay me, yet I will trust you. David wept. David rejected bitterness. And thirdly, David encouraged himself in the Lord. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. He wasn't encouraged by his circumstances. He wasn't encouraged by any of the people he had trained. All the people he had invested himself into, they were not an encouragement at all. They were a threat, in fact, by now. Looking around the camp, it was very discouraging. He decided to focus himself on God. What do you do when you face this? What do you do when your business fails? What do you do when you don't know what to do? What do you do when there seems to be no way out? You encourage yourself in the Lord. That means you place your focus on God. You look to Him. I look to the Lord from which comes my strength. That means you focus completely to look at Him. The translation says you limit your focus to God. In the darkest hour, when you're afraid, when you're apprehensive, You limit your focus to the Lord. You block the peripheral, and you lock on to the things of God. You get tunnel vision. You focus on who He is, on His power, His faithfulness, His might. What He's done for you in the past, He will do for you today. When Paul faced certain death, he's facing the entire Roman government, the empire of his day. Listen to his perspective As he's working his way up the chain to one day face the emperor of Rome, he's now before one of the kings, and he says, I think myself happy, King Agrippa. Now remember what's going on in Paul's life. You see this? He's standing before the ruler who's considering his future. Will I pass him up the the chain of command for sentencing? Will I set this man free? Paul's got to think this is not a happy situation but I think myself happy. Do you know how you get depressed? You think yourself depressed. Do you know how you get happy? You encourage yourself in the Lord. 
And the result is the joy of the Lord. There's something good, positive in his word you can look at. So you got up today. You're breathing today. You're alive today. You can stand on your feet today. So listen, you ought to rejoice in the Lord your God. If he gave you nothing else but this day, you rejoice in the Lord your God. wise man said this, a living dog is better than a dead lion. Lions have great strength, great agility. When they're dead, they're dead, and I'm alive. I might not be what they are, but I've got another day. Amen? Got another day. Encourage yourself in the Lord. And notify your face while you're doing that. I think myself happy. Amen? Notify your face. I refuse to allow this circumstance to control my thinking because when that starts happening, you're going in the wrong direction. You must get your thinking aligned with God's perspective. Paul said, I command my emotional state to be one of joy, one of happiness. You know, some people walk into church looking like the cover girl for the book of Lamentations. I mean... (laughs) I mean, you know, sad all the time. And you walk around and you wonder why people don't want to go to heaven with you. Because you're too sad. You've got nothing in you that is attractive to anybody else. God gets glory. Listen, when we're going through hell, when we get up in the morning, in spite of that, and we say, this is the day the Lord has made, I will praise him anyway, I will look For a better day today than I had yesterday. I don't like where I am, but this is not where I'm headed for. I'm going to a better destination. So I refuse to be depressed. I refuse to be down and out, pessimistic, beat up from the floor up. Listen, always complaining. People are talking about, listen to me. Come on now. Who are you? A chosen generation, a royal priesthood, his own special people, Come on, you ought to be praising the Lord. Focus on Him. It's a good day. And some of you got it. And some of you are still looking at me partly cloudy. That's okay. I choose the joy of the Lord as my dominant emotion. I could choose to focus on nothing but negative. I could choose to be depressed, but I choose instead... The joy of the Lord. Encourage yourself. Because if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. That is a peewee Christian. They could be 80 years old, but peewee Christian. Fall into pieces. Listen, if Christ lives in you, in the face of adversity, there's power inside of you that will not let you give up. Something in you, it's the Spirit of the Lord. Listen, it won't let you quit. Something in you stands up and says, this is not the end. This is not over. When hell whispers, checkmate. Something in you says, I don't think so. You can have a cheerful consistency about you. So you ought to look at your husband today and say, that's what you need, darling. 
least say darling. I mean, a cheerful consistency. Choose the joy of the Lord. Depression will not dominate you. Fear will not dominate you. Worry will not dominate you. Choose the joy of the Lord. The biggest issue in my life has been settled. My name is in the Lamb's book of life. I am born again. What can hell do to me? What can it do? Life is too short to walk around depressed and dismal, always in the dark side. That's not God's will for your life. Come on, everybody. You ought to praise the Lord for the day he's given you today. Praise him for it. Number four, David got a word from the Lord. So David goes to the priest and he says, hey, I need a word from the Lord. I got to have a word. So David inquired of the Lord and he said, shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And God answered him, pursue for you shall surely overtake them and without fail recover all. Yeah. Wouldn't you love that? Love that. Lord directed him to go pursue that enemy. You're going to recover everything he's stolen from you. And the scripture tells us not only did they get everything back, their families, children, their belongings, all their stuff, they got all of that back. But you see, these raiders and terrorists had been doing this to camp after camp after camp and had spoils from all the raids they had committed. And David's men not only took back what belonged to them, they took everything they had. All the spoils. You shall recover it all, and what you don't recover, God will replace with something better. And suddenly David is filled with the vision of total victory. The thing you need when facing the tragedies of life, get a word from the Lord. When you truly get a word from God, it will fill you with a vision of total victory. So Job said, he's speaking about the eagle, and way before science could ever investigate with their instruments and measure the ability of the eagle with insight from God, God is speaking to Job, chapter 39, verse 27, the eagle Spies out the prey, its eyes observe from afar. Okay? The one that created it knew what he was doing when he made that bird. An eagle will look and observe from a high altitude what's ahead of him, what's beneath him. He can spot prey from an altitude that's astonishing. Now, if you're a chicken, all you do is peck around old McDonald's farm. Okay? But that's what separates chickens from eagles. And the Word says believers ought to be compared to eagles. That's how God compares us. We don't just peck around in the dust, only seeing dirt. But an eagle soars above the clouds. An eagle can cruise around 12,000 feet, spot any prey that it desires, spot oncoming storms, and thinks, you know, it may not be a good idea to stay where I am right now, but I can still soar higher. And I can see above the storm that's headed my way. So that eagle literally will begin to soar upwards using those massive wingspan and literally has been spotted by airline pilots above 35,000 feet. They have observed eagles soaring above the clouds. You might not like what you're seeing right now. Listen, but you're seeing that God's going to bless you. He will take you higher. Better days are coming. I can see the sun through the clouds. Weeping won't last always. The sun will rise again. 
God will raise you up. He promised to do that. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, Pastor Pat, and the young men shall utterly fall, Pastor Pat, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So Calvary Christian Center, you're regaining your strength. You're not chickens. You're eagles. Soar. Amen. Soar. Look upward. See beyond where you are. Because your vision is your future. What you're seeing becomes your future. And how you see it, through your own perspective. Seven different times in the scripture, God asks his people, what do you see? Now, when God asks us a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. Because he knows we have to figure it out. He already knows the answer to that question. Trying to get us to think, what do I see? What am I really looking at? Because if you can't see it, you can't achieve it. And if you can't see that you're the head and not the tail, that you are above and not beneath, if you can't see a more blessed life, if you can't see a happier marriage, if you can't see it, you will never achieve it. That's why God asks his people time and again, what do you see? Because if you see yourself as a grasshopper, you will spend your life hopping around, okay? But if you see yourself as a giant slayer, you will take down giants. But you've got to see it. And when you delve into God's word, it gives you a photograph of total victory in your future. You shall recover it all and spoils besides. So what blesses us? Through the terror experienced in New York in 2001, the cross that emerged at the base of the Twin Towers, amazing, the hope that God brought people. That cross still stands today. There's an emblem of hope welded together in the heat of the flames at the core of the fire stands that cross. In Boston, in the worst day in their history since probably Lexington and Concord or Bunker Hill, that woman falling to her knees and praying on the street. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge, my fortress, my God. In him will I trust. Because our help comes from the Lord. And if that captures what we need to be doing in America today, that picture, in my opinion, captures what we're supposed to be doing today. We need to be on our knees. We need to have our faces turned toward heaven. We need to be asking the Lord to help us God's saying to us, bring me all of your pain. Bring me the tragedy. Bring all your tears. Bring all these uncertainties. Bring them to me because out of the dust and out of those ashes and out of the blood and the losses will come hope. Will be the power of the cross. Power of his resurrection. Thanks be to God. 
who gives us victory over sin and death through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the cross has purchased restoration for every family, every marriage, every substance abuser. And out of the disasters of your life and the chaos and the losses, Jesus knows how to take that which is ugly and bring out of it beauty and joy and peace. Oh, we must turn to him today. Our own community has seen an uptick in crime, gang operations, drug abuse. And that's not just indicative of us. It's indicative that the fabric of what made America once great in its values has been damaged by the way we have chosen to block God out of the fabric of our hearts, lives, and decision-making. If there was ever a day we need to do what that lady in Boston did, this is that day. Now fall on our faces before God and say, forgive us. We need you back at the center of who we are. He made America great. He did. Because he was brought into the core of the fabric of our declaration, our constitution, and our bill of rights. The government does not give you rights. Our forefathers explained it well. They are God-given to you. And no man can take them away. You might forfeit them, but no man can take them away. So let's stand. Take a moment. Lift our voices and our hearts to the Lord.